Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, January 7th, we are starting a new series for the new year here on Sharper Iron. From now all the way through Easter, we will be working our way through the gospel according to St. Luke. The beloved physician did his homework in writing this gospel account. The evangelist spoke with apostles, with eyewitnesses, whose firsthand testimony confirmed what Jesus said and did. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, St. Luke wrote his orderly account in order to give certainty to Theophilus, to you, to me, and to all concerning the good news about Jesus Christ. Today we will be introducing the gospel as a whole and studying the introduction, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us the Reverend Dr. Jeffrey Oswald. Dr. Oswald serves as Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Oswald, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thank you. Very good to be here with you. So, Dr. Oswald, we're, we're introducing the whole gospel today, which is a, a monumental task. Uh, as we get started, just help us into who's the author. Tell us a little bit about Luke. What do we know about him from elsewhere in Scripture? Who, who is this Luke who wrote this gospel? Well, you already mentioned in your opening that many of us think of Luke especially as the beloved physician. Uh, he is mentioned several places in Scripture, uh, especially in his connection uh, with Paul, with St. Paul. Uh, he is uh, referred to as one of Paul's traveling companions in the book of Acts, uh, and you can see that in the text when Luke changes from narrating using pronouns like they and them uh, did things or went places to suddenly speaking of we and us. At those points, Luke joins the missionary team uh, and Paul's references to Luke in his own letters show the close and very uh, trusted, very uh, sort of intimate, friendly relationship they had. Uh, in Philippians 24, he refers to Luke as one of his co-workers. Uh, it's actually in Colossians 4, where you have the reference to Luke as a beloved physician. And then one of the most poignant references as at the end of 2 Timothy, probably very near the end of Paul's own life, where he writes that only Luke is with me. Uh, so both in his travels and in his imprisonments, uh, Luke was a faithful companion and regarded as a, a trustworthy pastor and teacher. Hmm. So you, I, you said a trustworthy pastor and teacher. Should we understand Luke to be a, a pastor like uh, I mean, like Paul, Timothy, Titus? Uh, what, what should, I, I usually refer to him as evangelist, but I mean, how should we understand Luke's role in the early church? He's never described as pastor, uh, and yet if you read Acts carefully, uh, you'll notice that on Paul's second missionary journey, as he's passing through Philippi, uh, suddenly the we passages stop. And then when Paul travels down, uh, you know, around the Aegean Sea, traveling into uh, Greece, actually, you know, Athens and then Corinth, and then circling back through Philippi on his, on his return trip to Jerusalem and Antioch, 
when they pass through Philippi, suddenly the we passages start up again. So the impression we get is that Luke was left in Philippi for the period of those travels uh, to continue to nurture and strengthen the new converts that the proclamation of the gospel had created there in Philippi. So I think at some points uh, in his career with uh, with Paul and then probably after Paul's death, uh, Luke continued not only just as a sort of traveling evangelist, but as someone who stayed and nurtured uh, congregations as well. And, and you can see that in the kind of care he shows in addressing this gospel to Theophilus. I, I love that detail, and I think that I'm going to have to keep that in mind as as we read through Luke here on Sharper Iron and see that you know that pastoral heart of of Luke come through. One one other question about Luke: he is labeled the beloved physician by Paul, and and I mean, so when we hear him called a physician, what should we have in mind? I, is this a like a doctor we have today, or something broader, something a little more narrow? What what would that have entailed for Luke to be a physician? From what we can tell, I think it's not too far off to think of Luke as a medical doctor the way we would think of our doctors today. Uh, of course, allowing for the difference, a very great difference at times in the way medicine was practiced in the ancient world. But perhaps the biggest thing to keep in mind is that uh, being a doctor was not necessarily an elevated social position. So many doctors entered their practices by starting out as actual slaves to other physicians. Uh, That's sort of how you did your internship and residency. And then as the doctor who was your mentor uh, approached retirement or perhaps perhaps, uh, passed away himself, uh, he would often then free that slave to simply take over the practice for him. Now, Luke is not referred to as a freed slave or anything like that in scripture, but that's a common uh, practice we've, we see in, in ancient texts. So to think of Luke as sort of at the top of the social scale, uh, that might be a bit of an anachronism. Uh, otherwise, uh, his care for people's uh, health, uh, he uh, certainly is interested in the well-being of a person, both body and soul, that comes through, I think, very strongly in his gospel, as well as in the book of Acts. And so that background is uh, a helpful one against which to read uh, both the gospel and Acts. Now, you keep bringing up Acts because we also know, I mean, the author of Luke is the same author as Acts. So Luke wrote both of them, which I think then lends into a question of, of when and where, because when we start talking about the when of Luke, you kind of have to bring in Acts and how that relates. So Dr. Oshwald, what, what do we know about the when of the writing of the book of Luke and also the, the where, if anything? Yeah, the... Actually, even in knowing Luke as the author of the gospel is somewhat connection, connected with the relationship to Acts, because it's in those passages where we see the author uh, speaking as a companion with Paul on his journeys uh, that we can see the clearest identification with Luke. He's simply the best possibility of all the people we know uh, to fit that description of a traveling companion. Then in terms of the writing uh, and the verses we will look at uh, here in a moment are very closely connected to the way the book of Acts begins. So there's a lot of pairing 
between Luke and Acts. And so almost uh, without exception from the beginning until uh, even today, people have said whether we know who wrote it or not, uh, we do know that the same person wrote both books. Now, the evidence, of course, when you go beyond that, points clearly to Luke, and that's been the, the unquestioned tradition of the church uh, up until very recent kind of critical studies of Luke. So the question of when also begins with Acts and works backwards. Unfortunately, it's not quite as simple or straightforward as it might seem at first reading. The book of Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome. His death, even the outcome of that imprisonment, is not recorded for us. I think it's wrong to assume that that means that's the exact moment when Luke wrote the book of Acts and that he actually didn't know what was going to happen to Paul when he published his book. If you assumed that that was the situation, then you would have to say that the book of Acts was written probably in the mid-60s of the first century of our era, right before Paul was executed in Rome. And then just working your way backwards, you would say the gospel had to be written a few years before that because it certainly seems like it was written first, and Luke refers to it as his first book. The problem with that view is that Luke's purpose in writing Acts is not, of course, to give us a life of St. Paul. His concern is to talk about the forward movement, uh, the growth of the Word of God in the world. And so he traces uh, the careers of first Peter and then Paul, not because he's interested in the, the facts of their lives so much as that he's interested in the way uh, the Word, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate, uses these human messengers to spread his gospel into the world. So that's the story Luke wants to tell, and he leaves it very open-ended as to uh, when uh, he finishes his writing uh, with the suggestion that the story, of course, will continue uh, until the end of time, this movement of the word out into the world. It's, it's growing stronger. Uh, that's the real uh, point of Luke's uh, two writings put together. Uh, so that leaves us with then very little to actually go on uh, in terms of when he would have written it uh, and sent it to Theophilus. Uh, early keep going dr oswald so because I'm, I'm curious i mean it sounds like it sounds like there is a lot of questions that are hard to answer with really any certainty but i am curious if, if you've got some thoughts on which way the evidence might lead you to to go with some of that yeah i was gonna say uh, there is the suggestion that luke lived for quite some time after paul was put mm -hmm. to death uh traditions about him never refer to martyrdom but that he lived uh one uh, account says into his 80s. So there would have been a period there uh, when this could have been written, um, you know, anywhere between, say, uh, 65 and 80. I do think the evidence points to uh, this being written very soon after Paul was killed. Uh, and again, as probably recounting this history for Christians, uh, strengthening them by means of the gospel, and then encouraging them to take up this work uh, themselves. So I don't think there's any reason to put it uh, much later than that, although to date it 
you know, specifically to a, a year, even a decade, uh, it really goes beyond what the evidence gives us. So, but I mean, it, it, in terms of where you would, and not to not to pick a, a particular date, but you're saying likely sometime after the martyrdom of Saint Paul, that's what we're looking. So the late '60s, perhaps, and and maybe maybe into the '70s, or is that too late? Yeah, I would say late '60s. Uh, that's the date I I usually tend to work with. Uh, there were some, of course, some. Uh, very uh, dramatic developments in the year 70 in terms of what right. happens in Jerusalem. Uh, none of that is reflected in uh, Luke or Acts, but of course it's not reflected uh, directly anywhere in the New Testament. Hmm. Uh, so again, that's not an extremely helpful um, outside piece of evidence to use in dating the work. Uh, but, uh, you know, why after Paul's death? Well, I think that's just practically when Luke would have had the time to do it. Mm. Um, why so close to Paul's death? Again, I think he wanted people not to lose track uh, both of the gospel, which you know may have already been in circulation, uh, but the way that gospel went into the world uh, through the apostles. Mm. Okay, so we've got, we got Luke writing this gospel likely after St. Paul's death, the late 60s, as a response to that, so that the word continues to spread, taking into account his, his work potentially as a pastor, as a, being left along the way with Paul and his journeys in Acts. What about, what about the audience, Dr. Oshwald? The, the, we get, we'll meet here in verse 3, yeah. the most excellent Theophilus. So what do we know about him, and how does that help us to understand the the one to whom this is written? Theophilus appears uh, in the role of a patron. Now, you know, again, there are a lot of questions asked about that, and Luke isn't very specific. Uh, but he's uh, the one thing we know for sure is that he's writing this sort of most directly for Theophilus. But uh, as many have said, no one writes a gospel and then only wants one person to read it. Hmm. Now, when you write a gospel, you want it to reach as many readers as possible. So I think the reference to Theophilus uh, is an indication of the kind of person Luke is writing for. So he, he mentions Theophilus uh, with a title. Uh, I do think Theophilus was an historic person uh, of a person in some kind of prominent office, that would also suggest well-educated. Luke specifically says he has been trained in the Christian faith, and the purpose for writing to him is to give him greater certainty, to give him assurance about the things he's been taught, that these things are true and trustworthy. The reason why some people suggest uh, Theophilus may actually be a symbolic reference uh, to any kind of reader is that the name can mean either the person God loves or the one who loves God. That would be the perfect symbolic name for anyone who might pick up Luke's gospel uh, and read it uh, with a positive attitude. This is someone who loves God already and wants to know more. Uh, still, I think the balance of the evidence points to uh, Luke writing to a person uh, whether the person sort of underwrote the publication of the gospel isn't so clear, but that he's the one Luke kept in mind as he was writing down the narratives and wanting to, to set things in the 
a kind of order that would give Theophilus more certainty and confidence. Uh, in many ways, Luke's gospel is the most complete, uh, at least from the perspective of the events of the life of Jesus that are included. It's the most complete treatment. So it puts all the pieces together for uh, the reader and gives him a very uh, detailed uh, and yet complete picture of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. With, with that, that Luke's, in, in many ways, Luke's gospel is the most complete, giving this detailed account of Christ's life. What are some of those features of Luke's gospel that stand out? Particularly, I mean, you know, when I think of Matthew, I think of, of the gospel, he, he quotes the Old Testament a significant amount. He's showing that Jesus is the Christ, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. When I think of Mark, I think of the, the action, you know, immediately is the word that comes to mind. When I, when I think of, of John, I think of the I am statements of Jesus. When it comes to Luke, what are some of his distinctive features in the way that he writes concerning the life of Jesus? I think because uh, Luke ties everything together so well, we often use Luke as kind of the background against which we read the other three Gospels. That's not bad, uh, but we also want to see what really makes Luke stand out. Uh, the way I often ask it is, can you even imagine uh, Christendom or Western civilization without Gabriel's visit to the young Virgin Mary, without Mary's hymn, uh, without the two-full inn, the angels, the shepherds, the manger, the swaddling clothes, the glory and excelsis, the nunc dimittis of Simeon, uh, the boy in his father's house about his father's business, uh, the young preacher who quoted to his home congregation, uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and then proclaimed, uh, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What about a world without the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son, uh, the lost sheep, Zacchaeus, dinner at the house of Martha and Mary, who would willingly give up the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, or today you will be with me in paradise. Or the angelic question, why do you seek the living among the dead? Uh, the all-too-human question, did not our hearts burn within us, the disciples on the road to Emmaus? All those things are known only uh, to us from Luke's gospel. Uh, and I think sometimes we tend to forget how much unique material there is in Luke uh, because it's the, the complete, the big picture against which we like to uh, place the particular scenes uh, we get from the other three Gospels. That's fantastic, Dr. Oshwald. As you were going through that list, I mean, I'm going through my, wow, I can't imagine, you know, how, how could you celebrate Christmas without the Gloria in excelsis or the shepherds running to the to the manger and, and all those distinctives from Luke, the, the parables from, from chapter 15, particularly the, the one with the two lost sons, you know, I mean, how... What yeah. what richness Luke gives us that that we don't have in the other gospels. So what a what a wonderful gospel to be reading here during this part first part of the year. Within within that and mm -hmm. in the distinctives that he has, and then the material that that is common to the other gospels. What are the I mean, what are the themes that that Luke emphasizes? What are some of the you know, I mean, when, again, when I think of Jesus as, as Matthew portrays him, I see him there as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Yeah. What is, what is, what's Luke doing in, in some of those with his themes that he emphasizes? Yeah, one of the most prominent that stands out is the, uh, we might call it the purpose of God. 
as you said in Matthew, you often see Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But in Luke, again and again, you see Jesus as the son who carries out the will of his father and accomplishes his father's purposes for the world. Those statements are often sort of um, focused on a tiny little word in Greek that in English gets translated, it is necessary. Those are almost comparable to the I am statements in John. Uh, it is necessary for the Son of Man to do these things. Uh, what's the necessity? The compulsion is the will of his Father to save his world. And again and again, the Son does what the Father wants, uh, fulfills the Father's will, uh, does the things that are determined, uh, the things that the Father desires. Uh, that theme in Luke actually does dovetail very well uh, with John's gospel, where, again, you see a lot of emphasis uh, on Jesus as the son who does the work that the father has given him to do. Uh, so the first theme that I would stress uh, when you're looking at the whole gospel of Luke is Jesus as the one who has come to complete, to fulfill, to carry out the will of his Father for the salvation of the world. That takes us right into a second theme, which is very important for Luke. And this is one that I would use to actually uh, challenge your hearers who are going to be working through Luke's gospel uh, with you uh, through this series of programs, and that is the theme of salvation. I alluded a little bit earlier uh, the way Luke has a concern for the whole well-being of a person, sort of body, soul, spirit, heart, mind, everything. And the word he uses when Jesus heals someone is quite often uh, the same word uh, that we translate to save. Uh, your faith has saved you. Uh, sometimes translated, your faith has made you well. Uh, but you tend to miss that connection that uh, what Jesus does for us in fulfilling his Father's will and carrying out this plan of salvation is to save us wholly and completely. Uh, so you um, get these uh, terms throughout the gospel about uh, Jesus's contact with people, bringing salvation to their houses or saving them uh, in terms of their physical health, uh, life-threatening conditions and things like that. All of this, I think, leads up to and climaxes uh, some words from the heckling crowds when Jesus is on the cross, and this is recorded in Luke chapter 23, where they say, He saved others, let him save himself. That raises for the reader the question of what does salvation really mean? What would it mean for Jesus to save himself here? Uh, fairly clearly, they're thinking in terms of the avoidance of the pain, uh, dodging the bullet, that sort of thing. That's certainly not at all what Jesus means by salvation, which is to give you the life uh, connected to the Father, uh, the life being filled with the Spirit of the Son, uh, all those things. That's what salvation is uh, in terms of Luke's gospel. Are there any other things you mentioned? So two so far that the son has come to complete the father's will for the salvation of the world. And then what that salvation entails, that this is a whole salvation for both body and soul, culminating there with those words on the cross. Any other themes that we should pay attention to in Luke's gospel? Yeah, the other, I would say, really big theme in Luke 
is the significance of the death uh, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Luke doesn't have the same kinds of passages that we find in Matthew and Mark about uh, the Son of Man coming uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And that's uh, caused some readers to think the death of Jesus is not that significant for Luke. That seems to be an odd claim uh, for, a, you know, when made about a gospel about Jesus Christ. And yet the relationship between death and resurrection is a little bit different in the way Luke presents the story from the way uh, Matthew and Mark do, which focus uh, much more, we might say, dramatically in terms of the center of the whole story on the death of Jesus for us uh, on the cross. For Luke, uh, the cross is a necessity. Uh, Jesus offers his life for others. Uh, that's clear from other passages that Luke includes, uh, like, for instance, uh, Jesus giving himself to uh, us in his uh, Last Supper, his Lord's Supper, but also the connection between his death um, and the whole background of Jewish Passover points to this one as uh, the Lamb whose blood is shed for us and protects us from that angel of death and enables us to pass over into life. But the resurrection narratives Luke gives are, uh, in many ways, some, well, it's hard to say most beautiful when you're talking about the Bible, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but we love these stories. Uh, the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, uh, we love his Jesus' appearance then to his closer circle in the upper room, and Luke gives... Uh, accounts of the risen Lord and his teaching of his disciples that have enabled the church to put all the pieces together ever since. So the, the, the resurrection of Jesus is the, the unexpected uh, new feature to the story, which means that you and I can expect that we will have an unexpected and new end to our story as well, that the story of our lives does not end in death, or defeat, uh, or the grave, but our story, too, will end in resurrection and life. And I think Luke, uh, well, at least in ways that are um, you know, powerful, uh, different from the other evangelists, helps us see the full uh, power, the meaning, the difference the resurrection of Jesus makes. Uh, it's not that this is kind of an afterthought or a P.S. or a, a denouement of the story. Uh, this is what it was all leading to. Here is the Son of God who has faithfully carried out his Father's will and has been raised from death to life again. And that changes everything. And what joy is ours to know that good news written for us by St. Luke the Evangelist, which is what we're looking at today on Sharp Iron. We need to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, January 7th. We are studying Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 with Dr. Jeffrey Oswald. He is professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Oswald, on the first side of the program, we were introducing the gospel as a whole. One more question by way of introduction. How, how does the gospel of Luke lay out? How would you outline it for us? It's pretty easy to sort of make all the Gospels fit into a, a kind of life of Jesus pattern, um, although certain segments will be you know, better represented in one Gospel as opposed to another. Uh, but Luke is the one that sort of most readily would follow that kind of pattern. So he begins with a prologue, and we're going to talk about that here in just a moment. But from there you go into... Uh, a rather extended infancy narrative, which includes then the birth of John the Baptist and the purpose, the sort of relationship between John and Jesus, uh, and after a few other events uh, that help the reader understand who Jesus is, and from a historical point, sort of show the transition of Jesus from childhood, uh, adolescence, into his ministry now as an adult, uh, his public ministry. You then, uh, like with uh, Matthew and Mark, have the account of his baptism, and he begins his ministry. Uh, that ministry takes place uh, early on, for the most part, uh, north of Jerusalem, uh, in the area of Galilee. So we have several accounts there, um, including Jesus's first sermon in his hometown, uh, Luke chapter 4. And then after a series of ministry events and uh, teaching discourses, uh, Jesus begins a journey to Jerusalem. And that uh, framing of so much of the story of Jesus as that journey to Jerusalem also kind of sets Luke apart from Matthew and Mark. I do think in Luke there are indications that Jesus didn't just make one final climactic trip uh, to Jerusalem or even to um, Judea to the south, uh, but in again, in closer proximity to John's account, uh, you have at least some uh, indications that Jesus was in that vicinity early. But the focus for the first part is on that ministry in the north. Then Jesus sets his face uh, to go to Jerusalem, making it clear that he was going there to suffer and die, but that he would be raised on the third day. Uh, that whole journey is sort of punctuated uh, with those announcements, or we might call them now reminders to his disciples that this was the purpose of this trip, and it was going to accomplish the will of his Father. Uh, this is what God had planned uh, for the salvation of the world, and he would be carrying this out even though uh, it was going to uh, be a terrible experience for his own followers to see him handed over to the leaders, uh, treated uh, shamefully and then put to death on the cross. 
there is then a short uh, moment of ministry in Jerusalem following his uh, royal entry into the city. Uh, I prefer that term to triumphant. Uh, I think the triumph is going to come at the end of that ministry in Jerusalem, not at the start of it, but he does enter as a king, as the king of God's people, uh, the the beloved son, uh, as he has been referred to uh, both at his baptism and his transfiguration. From there, Luke transitions to the passion narrative. Uh, You see the conspiracy, the betrayal, Uh, the Last Supper, the celebration of the Passover with his disciples, uh, events that are very familiar uh, to our listeners, I'm sure. Uh, Then uh, the scene at the Mount of Olives, uh, you know, arrest, trial, uh, then the crucifixion itself, uh, Jesus' death and burial, and then the resurrection narrative, which we were talking about just a moment ago, Uh, this beautiful section of appearance to women, um, the road to Emmaus, the disciples in Jerusalem, and then his uh, final promise that this word would go out into all the world. And unlike any other gospel, uh, Luke ends by referring to the ascension of Jesus, his return uh, to his father's side. Uh, That's then Uh, sort of overlaps with the very beginning of Acts, which uh, refers back to his death, his resurrection, and then gives a fuller account of the ascension. Hmm. One verse I like to uh, point out to people as they're thinking of the uh, gospel as a whole uh, is uh, when Jesus is talking to his uh, own uh, disciples in the upper room after his resurrection, Uh, shortly before his ascension, and uh, he says, uh, these things um, are written. Um, He refers to his passion, uh, his resurrection, and then he says, uh, and the preaching in his name of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations. At this point in the story, Uh, the reader knows that the first two, the passion of Christ and his resurrection, have already happened. Uh, He knows with certainty that the third thing, the proclamation of repentance and forgiveness in Jesus' name, uh, will be just as certain uh, to take place as the other two things uh, that he's already read about. So it's, again, not so much a command uh, to the disciples, uh, this is what you need to do now that I'm returning to my Father, but it's a, a sure and certain pronouncement uh, that this is the way the history of the world will go. Uh, death, resurrection, proclamation, these three things stand written. So with that outline in mind, today we are looking at verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1. So we read the text. This is from the ESV. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That's the text for today. That's Luke 1, verses 1 to 4. 
So, Dr. Oshwald, you called this, I think, a, a prologue. The, the ESV suggests this is a dedication. What, I mean, what kind of, what is this section of Luke? What are these verses? Yeah, you'll see the terms both prologue and preface uh, used, and I'm not sure that one is necessarily better to the other, better than the other, but it is certainly more than a simple dedication. At least the way we think of dedications today, uh, we think of them as uh, naming the person and usually some reason why this book is uh, written in their honor. Uh, neither Luke nor Theophilus, of course, would want us to think this is written in Theophilus's honor, even though Theophilus may have helped make it possible for Luke uh, to write this gospel. Uh, in many Bibles, this part stands bracketed off from the rest of the text. There's a bit of a space there, so it's certainly preliminary or introductory. Uh, if you look at the way verse 5 begins, you have, and it came to pass in the days of Herod. That's where the story itself will begin. But Luke wants us to think about a few things before we actually take up the story and begin to read it. Uh, these uh, sort of tightly uh, interwoven, carefully constructed phrases and clauses uh, form what the grammarians call a period or a periodic sentence. It's almost, in a sense, like poetry, but not quite. It doesn't serve quite the same purposes but it's to introduce you to the kind of thing you're going to be reading. And uh, here, of course, emphasizes the care that the author took uh, from a human perspective in putting together this gospel. So let, let's talk about the care that he took. Before he talks about the care that he took, he mentions that others have done something similar. The way the ESV translate this is, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So uh, what's, what's he talking about here? Who are these many? What have they compiled? How does, how does he get started there in verse 1? That's been one of the big questions, uh, even since ancient times, uh, when people have read these words from Luke. Uh, whom exactly does he have in mind here? Luke isn't very specific here. In fact, uh, some people say he's frustratingly oblique uh, in not giving us specific names and uh, dates of people he has in mind. But there are a couple of things that are important for the reader of Scripture to keep in mind. First of all, uh, the word use, Luke uses to describe this is uh, literally sort of taking in hand. Now, that can mean attempt, uh, or it can mean uh, simply uh, many did this. Uh, they saw this as their work, and so uh, they have undertaken it. Is Luke saying that these earlier attempts were less than satisfying, or there was something inadequate about them. If you're thinking that Luke is here referring to other Gospels that we know from our New Testament, then it's very uh, difficult, even a little bit troubling, to think he's saying these were unsuccessful attempts, like they tried to do this, but now I'm going to do it. I think one of the most interesting sort of perspectives on this comes from uh, Origen of Alexandria, who lived in the uh, uh, late 2nd and early 3rd century, the first half of the 3rd uh, century. When he was talking about this, uh, describing it to his people in one of his 
one of his sermons actually on this text, uh, he says that many did try to write Gospels, that there were many Gospels known, um, but that the ones uh, that proved to be true, uh, these sort of separated themselves out. They uh, were distinguished from all the other Gospels. Now, these are the Gospels that are read in the church. Uh, he says the words have tried suggest an, in, uh, an accusation against those people. Uh, in contrast to Matthew, Mark, John, and Luke, who didn't try, they actually wrote Gospels uh, under the grace and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so he sees it as somewhat critical, uh, but doesn't see it as a reference to Matthew or Mark. This passage has been used as sort of conclusive proof that Luke used written sources. I'm not sure that's the best way to read it. And that uh, fact never seems to come up uh, as of any importance later on in Luke's gospel. Uh, his point here seems to be, you may have heard many different stories about Jesus. This is the one I'm going to tell you uh, is the one that's based on what the eyewitnesses of these events who then became uh, the first messengers, the ones who handed this tradition on to us, uh, that's the story I'm going to tell you, and that will give you confidence that what you've heard is the truth, as opposed to some of the competing stories that you may know about Jesus. So just to, to summarize that, if I can, Dr. Ashwald, you're, you're suggesting that what Luke is saying here is that there are other stories out there floating around about Jesus, and what I'm writing to you, Theophilus, is something that's been well-researched. It, it's according to what the eyewitnesses say so that you can know that this is the truth. And those other ones that are floating, if, if that's the way that Luke is writing this, then the other ones that are out there floating around, he's not talking about Matthew and Mark, but he's talking about something something else, something that's not true or not the full truth that stands in contrast to what he's writing. Is that is that what you're suggesting? Yes, that's what, uh, what I was getting at. Uh, now, there is, I think, another way to, to understand this uh, opening, which is to take that uh, attempt not as sort of a criticism of these attempts, uh, but that uh, others have written accounts, uh, not necessarily uh, Gospels, but notice uh, what Luke says they're writing accounts of. Uh, the things that have been uh, brought to complete fulfillment among us. Uh, one way of understanding that would be uh, these other accounts that Luke is talking about are accounts of the things not that Jesus did so much, but the things that he brought to fulfillment. Uh, if you read the passage that way, it could also include uh, all, that's the, all that the prophets spoke about Jesus. It could uh, include essentially the whole biblical history. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily mean uh, I sat down with two or three uh, books in front of me I pulled out what I thought were the best parts, and that's what you're getting here in the third gospel. Uh, whether you look at it as critically or not, uh, Luke is giving us assurance that what we have here is the truth. Uh, I think Luke would encourage you to compare what you read in the gospel that's going to follow 
with what you might also know from Matthew or Mark, or just from hearing the story about Jesus, and then of all those attempts, uh, see which ones follow that tradition, which has been handed down by people who actually saw these things and know firsthand who Jesus was, what he said, and what he had come to accomplish. So One problem going, in dealing going. with these opening words, I think, is to try to sort of narrow them down more than the text will allow you to, uh, to uh, use them to sort of support a particular uh, kind of literary theory about what Luke had in front of him when he wrote his gospel, uh, or to suggest a relationship uh, between Luke and Matthew and Mark. Uh, I don't think the verse allows you to do that, uh, but it's meant to be um, sort of inviting, uh, very inclusive uh, word to the reader to come read uh, these words uh, that are certain and that are written for your benefit. Talk a little bit more about Luke's, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, his research process. He, he In verse 2, he talks a little bit about this. You know, he, he talks about those who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word. It, it sounds like Luke is telling Theophilus, and us as readers as well, uh, the way I said it earlier, I think it was, I did my homework. Is, is that kind of what, I mean, what, what was Luke's process in writing this, at least from that human perspective? Yeah, that uh, point actually comes out uh, clearly in verse 3 as well. Uh, but verse 2 is important uh, to remind us that Luke does not claim to be someone who actually walked around with our Lord and witnessed uh, his miracles, heard his teaching himself. So he does distinguish himself from that group, uh, which you said you know, are the original eyewitnesses, the ones who were there watching Jesus with their own eyes, and then became, um, after they were eyewitnesses, the ones who passed on uh, this tradition as servants of this word. So Luke is connecting himself uh, at the same time as he's distinguishing, he, distinguishing himself from them, saying, these are the sources uh, from which the story you were taught, Theophilus, um, these are the sources from which those stories have come. Now, in verse 3, he moves on to say, uh, there were others who have written things about Jesus, and so it seemed good to me as well. Now, there's not the suggestion really of criticism uh, that even though they had done this, for that reason, I decided I have to do this too to set the record straight. Uh, but this is a worthwhile thing to do. Uh, and worthwhile in the goal of producing uh, certainty and confidence in the followers of Jesus. So in verse 3, uh, Luke speaks of himself as someone who has followed very carefully uh, from the beginning, either sort of from the beginning of the story of Jesus uh, or uh, from the beginning of really of his Christian life, he has spent his whole life following these things. I think it really can mean both ideas there. Uh, he has uh, written um, very carefully uh, and in an order that will, uh, like I said, build confidence, uh, fill in any gaps that Theophilus might have had in his knowledge about Jesus and what Jesus had done for him. Uh, so in both of those cases, you see uh, Luke... Uh, doing his homework, as you said, uh, both in connection and uh, with these eyewitnesses, 
I think Luke traveled widely in the ancient world. That's the impression we get from Acts. Uh, he would have been in contact, I think, with both uh, the Jerusalem apostles as well as Paul and his circle. Um, but he also devoted himself to the task of knowing who Jesus was uh, and presenting that in a way that would help other people know him as well. So, I mean, this is the way that I've often tried to imagine this in my own mind. And, and as an example, I'll use Luke chapter 2, that you know, because you get that detail in Luke 2.19, that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I've, mm-hmm. I've often looked at that as a, an evidence that Luke sat down, talked to Mary, said, tell me what happened the night Jesus was born, and she recounted that to him, and then he wrote it down like this. I mean, is that the kind of... Is, is that the kind of process that he's ta- and I know that's maybe you know a little bit of of conjecture, but is that the kind of process that he seems to be talking about here in these first verses? Yeah, uh, more critical scholars will uh, probably say that's naive, but I think that's the natural <laughs> way to read the text. And there's really nothing naive or incredible about it uh, when you regard someone as your Lord and Savior, you want to know everything you can about him. Luke had the opportunity to do that, and one wonders where else could Luke have gotten that kind of detail uh, other than from uh, Mary herself. Hmm. There are a couple of other pieces that I think uh, fit perfectly in connection with this point uh, you just brought up. Uh, In the book of Acts, uh, it's been pointed out that Luke names over a hundred people. Now, that's a lot of people that he had contact with and actually names uh, as significant uh, characters in his story. Uh, that show gives you some idea of how many people Luke had contact with uh, and uh, suggests, at least, that wherever Luke traveled, he found out what he could from that place about what people might have known about Jesus. Uh, the other point I was going to bring up is a bit more legendary. Uh, but there's uh, a tradition that Luke was also a painter. Hmm. Uh, He painted portraits. I don't know if you've heard this before. Uh, I think it may well have developed from the ability Luke has to paint portraits with his words. Uh, You really feel like you know the people that appear on the pages of his gospel. Uh, But there is actually a a tradition that he painted uh, Mary's portrait. Um, Now, I don't actually myself put a lot of uh, stock in that. It's a beautiful tradition, but it doesn't matter a whole lot to me whether it's true or not. But it does take us back to that point that Luke seemed to have a very close connection to the people who were part of Jesus's life, uh, to the people who were the eyewitnesses of his ministry, uh, his death and resurrection for us. And he takes all of that experience, all of that knowledge, and he pours it, of course, under the guidance of the Spirit, into the pages of his gospel. Dr. Oswald, I hate to tell you this, but we're running lower on time. We got about four minutes oh. here, and I, I want to. There's so many follow-up points I could I could ask, but let me. I'm curious about two more things, I suppose. The the orderly mm-hmm. account, and then I think the the matter of certainty will be a good place to close. What what does Luke mean by the when he says he's going to write an orderly account? I think the easiest way to understand that is uh, simply the way we would think of it. If you're telling a long story, 
uh, how do you put the various pieces of it together in an order uh, that makes the story understandable, uh, perhaps even memorable, uh, and shows you the connections between uh, the various episodes that are then organized. Uh, it suggests that Luke may have had uh, you know, material coming from some of these individual sources uh, that were just small episodes in the life of Jesus, and he had to try to arrange them into a, a meaningful and coherent whole. Uh, so that, for instance, uh, you know, one day Jesus went here, uh, there's no indication of exactly what month or year that was. Now, where do we put this in the story of Jesus, uh, where it fits, fits the context and uh, makes good sense in where the story is going? Uh, so Luke uh, does prepare the reader very well from the very, uh, even before the birth of Jesus, the first announcements of his appearance, uh, walking you carefully through Jesus so you know who he is, you know what he's come to do, and you're prepared uh, in many ways, uh, much better prepared for what's going to come at the end of the gospel uh, than those eyewitnesses were who uh, were so shocked, uh, confused, bewildered, uh, even uh, came close to being scandalized uh, by Jesus' death. Finally, Dr. Oshawa, with about two minutes left, this prologue preface closes. Luke says he wants Theophilus to have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Use that to, to help us bring this to a conclusion and, and get us ready to read this gospel account in which we will see Jesus and have certainty in him. Yeah, that is, in fact, the uh, final word in the Greek text of the uh, this uh, prologue uh, is certainty. Uh, it's uh, our word that we actually uh, use asphalt, uh, it comes from that. So it's meant to be a stable, uh, not a slippery foundation. So something you can feel secure about. Uh, you won't be stumbling. Uh, you'll have uh, a good foothold, and you can go into this uh, confident about what you already know, uh, but then building on that uh, solid foundation. And I think that's the last thought Luke wants in the reader's mind before then we turn uh, to the, the days of King Herod and the beginning of the story of our Lord's uh, life for us. One other point very quickly is that this way of introducing a text uh, would have suggested to an ancient reader that they're going to read a certain kind of book or, or a text. I think the best uh, way I've seen that described is this sounds like the beginning of a report. Uh, now, when we think of reports, we think of you know careful attention to details. Uh, we think of uh, putting those details together in a way that makes a point, uh, brings us to new understanding. Uh, and that seems to be uh, what the sort of thing Luke has in mind. Uh, he wants you to know this isn't a story for entertainment. Uh, this is not just a great life of a great man. Uh, I'm reporting to you facts that are important, and I'm putting them together in a way where you can see the story and you can see the meaning of just who this Jesus is. Dr. Jeffrey Oswald is professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, helping us today to introduce the gospel according to St. Luke and take a look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Dr. Oswald, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you very much. 
I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about this gospel according to St. Luke, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We'd love to hear from you and interact with you on this wonderful gospel account. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.